all God's people said? Amen. Amen. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Esther. Esther, if you'll go over there in the Old Testament, right before the book of Job, uh, you'll find uh, the book of Esther nestled in there. Esther chapter 4, verse 12. I titled this message today, The Stewardship of Position. And again, we've got, uh, you know, with families gathered in here, we got children, and that's all right. But I've titled this, The Stewardship of Position. And uh, I want us to read, let me just go ahead and read. In Esther chapter 4, I'll give you a little bit of background. We'll go back, we'll look at this. But the bottom line is, is that Esther, this girl who was once a slave, is now the king, and now the queen of the Persian Empire. She is a very powerful political figure, if nothing else, because of her association with Xerxes, who is the king of the Persian Empire. And at this time, the Persian Empire is the world-dominating empire. They have defeated the Babylonians. They are clearly in power at this point. Now, there has been a conspiracy hatched by a man by the name of Haman that could result in the death of all the Jewish people. And so Mordecai, who is a cousin 15 years older than Esther, is trying to get Esther to step up and use that position to help her people, the Jewish people, who are about to be exterminated by a conspiracy hatched by a man by the name of Haman. Haman is an Agite, an Agagite. He is a, an Amalekite. He is a very evil, bad person. And so Mordecai's telling her, you're the queen, and you've got to go to the king, and you've got to plead on behalf of your people. Well, Esther says, you don't understand, or maybe you did. Xerxes is a very unpredictable kind of personality. He, he'll prove that. We'll look at that in a moment. And if I go unsummoned, in other words, if he doesn't summon me, and I go without being summoned, he can kill me. And so Mordecai gives her these words. And everybody listen. These are the last words that were preached by a man by the name of Brother Valentine. Brother Valentine was the pastor of this church for 20-something years. When he retired, the governor of the state of Mississippi came to his retirement. This church was one of the first churches to do radio ministry back in the 1960s. And Gene Harris back there can remember because Clyde Harris would sing in a little small choir in a building that's now been torn down. These were the la this was the passage that he preached before he retired. I may be a little bit loud to me up here, Eric. But anyway, as, uh, Esther chapter 4, beginning at verse 12, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. Now look at the next words. And who knows but that you have come to this royal position for such a time as this. Let me pray again. Lord, we thank you. We love you. We pray, dear Lord, you wrap your arms around us. 
Fill this place with your Holy Spirit. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. And Lord, cleanse me. Lord, through the blood of Jesus Christ, forgive me of anything that's come out of my mouth, come out of my mind, come before my eyes. Lord, let me be a tool today in your hand for your glory. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Sheila and I, we've been watching this um, series. It's by Bear Grylls. How many of you know who Bear Grylls is? He's a really unique individual. He's from England. And this, this series is called The World's Toughest Race. Anybody seen it? The World's Toughest Race. It is an unbelievable series. I, it's great watching, so I'd encourage you to do it. But anyway, Bear Grylls was with the British Army Special Forces. He is a survivor instructor. He's 46 years old. He's married. He has three kids. He has three kids, all sons. I was telling Sheila on the way here, he got into trouble one time because he was teaching his sons how to survive. He left one of them on an island. A storm came in and the British Navy had to go save his son. He's just a unique individual, a fascinating individual. He has one sister, an older sibling, who when he was, was one week old, called him Bear, and that nickname stuck with him. Uh, he describes his faith, Bear Grylls describes his faith as the backbone of his life. Now let that sink in for a moment. He is a deeply devout, committed Christian who says of his faith it is the backbone of his life. He speaks English, he speaks Spanish, he speaks French. He endlessly, tirelessly is always doing charity work for children all over the world. He's an unbelievable individual. He paraglided higher than Mount Everest and I think set a record and raised an enormous amount of capital for children's charities. He jet skied around the UK, once again raising the ability to fund many charities for children around the world. Now I tell you all that to say this, he's not necessarily about the gear that bears his name. He uses his position as a means of doing charity and service and humanitarian work around the world, and he's now teaching that to his three sons. That's powerful. Last week, we talked about being yoked and the danger when a believer is yoked to something that is not good. I have spent my life in the African-American conflict. Uh, at times I've told you my life has been threatened. KKK has threatened my life. Uh, there have been times police have had to watch my home. There have been times there have been people even in this church that were watching out for me, that would come to simply uh, to watch out. You know, uh, civil rights right now is a, is, a, is a realm of our nation or an area right now that we are really wrestling with. We're trying to understand it. And as believers, what are we to do? Last week's message was yoked, why a believer cannot bow or kneel to the Black Life Matter organization. Now remember, as a believer, as a Christian, you and I understand this. Black lives have always mattered to God. 
And I've spent 40 plus years in ministry making that statement and standing on that, not only here, but in Africa, in England, and around the world. Black lives have always mattered to God. But Black Life Matter organization, as we looked last week, is not necessarily an organization that African Americans need to be affiliated with, and more so Christians. We saw the NBA player who... Uh, recently would not kneel, African-American NBA player that refused to kneel. Saw it in the uh, Major League Baseball. Last week we looked at a man by Micaiah. Micaiah, we see in Second Chronicles chapter 18, is giving counsel as a prophet to Jehoshaphat and Ahab. You remember Jehoshaphat was united or yoked together with this evil king of the northern kingdom Israel, whose wife was named Jezebel. You remember Ahab and Jezebel. Jehoshaphat had no business being in that relationship. He not only, listen, he had his children married in a political alliance with Ahab and Jezebel. He was yoked to something he should have never been yoked to and with. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 19, verses 1 and 2, a man by the name of Jehu confronts Jehoshaphat and tells him, you are linked to the wrong man, the wrong organization, and you need to break away from it. So the premise of the argument last week was this. The great danger in the African-American com community is the propensity or the tendency to be yoked to everything but Christ. Now you may say, well, that's a strong statement, but Martin Luther King Jr., in a Louisville speech, warned that this would be a real danger, that what would happen is that other groups would somehow try to yoke themselves to the African-American civil rights movement for their own personal gains. And he warned of that before he died. Now you may say, why well, preach this? And next, next week will be the last week that I'll be dealing with this. But why preach this? Because nearly every political issue today has moral implications. You know, I want you to think about that. Nearly every political issue that we face today has moral and biblical implications. So we as a church are no longer allowed to be silent. We have to speak. I was listening to a preacher that reminded his congregation. He said, you know, the Bible says, Jesus said, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He said, Jesus said, the meek shall inherit, the meek shall inherit the earth. He said, not the unrighteous, not the ungodly. God has not called the church to roll over and play dead. God has called us to stand up and to be the people that God has called us to be. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, we looked last week. First of all, the Black Life Matter organization, its platform is contrary. And you can go back and research this for yourself, or you can go back and listen to last week's message. Its platform is contrary to everything this scripture teaches. It is a Marxist organization organized by three Marxists. Two of them call themselves trained Marxists. It is anti-God. Let me say this again. Marxism is anti-God. Karl Marx said this. He said, religion is the opiate of the people. And for Marxism to work, you will have to remove religion, belief systems, 
faith, you're going to have to get rid of all of that for Marxism to be able to flourish because it is a, a, the opiate of the people. It's like a drug that you've got to get people off of in order that they will follow the political ideology of Marxism. I reminded you last week that 120 million people were killed under Marxism in the last century. 48 million estimated Christians. So as a believer and as a follower of Jesus Christ, we see that Marxism and Christianity cannot be in the same room. They are ideologies that are in conflict with one another. I was sent a video by China's crackdown on the Muslims in a place in China called Xinjiang. In Xinjiang, it was an article about the Muslims that are being indoctrinated, being basically imprisoned and being indoctrinated with the Marxism of China and pulling them out of their faith. And I thought this was interesting. I went on to read an ESP artic ESPN article by Republican uh, Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee in July. Just recently, in July 2020, she confronted the NBA and its ties to China. And she said, this is not right. The NBA commissioner, Adam Silver, came back pulled, listen to this, pulled the NBA airing of NBA games in China at a cost of over $400 million because of what China was doing to the Muslim faith. And I made this statement last week. I said the Muslims had better wake up and they better realize that just as they're coming after Christianity, they'll soon come after the Muslims. And China is a case in point there in Xinjiang, China. We live in difficult times. The bottom line is, is that Marxism has never worked, no matter where it is. Never worked. You can't give one good example of Marxism working. Then we talked last week about Black Lives Matter, the organization having Marxist ties. It's also seeped. It's also infiltrated with the, with the LGBTQ and IFP movement. Its founders or of the LGBT movement, remember on their platform, we foster a queer-affirming network. When we gather, we do so with the intention of freeing ourselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking, or rather the belief that all in the world are heterosexual. There's clearly an LGBT homosexual agenda within Black Lives Matter organization. Somebody said it's, it's feminist on steroids. Nowhere in Black Lives Matter platform do you find the word father. Nowhere in it. And you may say, well, wait a minute, a, a, a movement, an organization that is about black lives and about black men and about, and about uh, some of the injustices that are done between law enforcement and, and black men, you'd think surely there would be uh, the term fathers, but it's nowhere in their platform. And yet 85% of children with behavioral problems are from fatherless homes. 90% of runaways are from fatherless homes. One time, on right over here, 
on Gibraltar. I was going down, came to that bridge over the interstate, looked up there. There was a guy laying up there like this. He was asleep, older gentleman. And there was a teenage girl sitting there, sitting there under that bridge, weeping and crying. When I got up, under, I got out, got up, a couple sack lunches, walked up there, sat down next to her. She was just bawling, crying, about 15 years of age. And I looked at her and began to ask her, what could I do to help her? She saw, she said, can I use your phone? Can I call my mom? My mom's in another city and in this state. Can I call her? And that girl, through tears, began to talk to her mom. Mom, I'm so sorry. Can I come home? She never mentioned her dad. 90% of, father, 90 of children that are runaways come out of fatherless homes. Davion, Davion made this statement, and I shared it last week. When I asked Davion in an interview between he and I and Bubba Holdafield, who is uh, a unique individual, a uh, man I have great respect for in law enforcement, but also a deep Christian, devout Christian with his own ministries. I looked at Davion, I said, Davion, what would it take to turn this city around? What is the problem? And Davion immediately said, fatherless homes. He said, I don't have friends who have fathers. And my friend, listen, 90% of runaways come from fatherless homes. Children of fatherless homes are 300 times more, 300% times more likely to deal with drugs and firearms. So if Black Lives Matter organization is concerned about changing the dynamics of many cities and many inner city communities, then my friend, they better put fathers back into their platform. But you're not going to find it. They are adamantly opposed to the nuclear family, the biblical nuclear family, and they are adamantly opposed to the patriarchal model of the family. Patriarchal means father-led home. They don't believe in it. Marxism is government being in the place of God. Marxism is government being in the place of your family. Marxism is government raising your children. It is a failed system. You may say, well, Black Lives Matter organization and Marxism, what does it matter? Because Marxism thrives on anarchy. What do you mean? Lawlessness. Marxism always thrives because it creates class conflict, racial conflict, sexual conflict. It begins, to, it begins to categorize people. You're either the victimizer or the victim. Two categories. And they build this conflict and they build this anger and it begins to seep into the soul of a society. And before long, people are angry and they don't even know what they're angry about. That's Marxism. And thank God, across this country, pulpits are waking up and preaching the truth. Victims, victimizers. Marxism never, never thrives unless it thrives in anarchy. Lawlessness. Convincing people that they're a victim. If I'm a victim, then there are certain principles that govern my life. If I see myself as a victim, number one, if I'm a victim, then I've got to identify victimizer. I've got to identify somebody that's making me a victim. If I'm black, it's white. If I'm white, it's black. If I'm heterosexual, it's homosexual. If it's homosexual, it's heterosexual. Before we've got to choose up sides. And we start categorizing people. 
Number two, if I'm a victim, that's my identity. These are the most difficult people to counsel. They will wear you out. Forty-something years, earned doctorate, have spent much of my life counseling. I can tell you that the most difficult individual of all, when they come in, they sit there and soak and sour in their, in their victimization. They're just victims. Oh, they're, they're victims. When you're a victim, if you're a victim, you remove all responsibility for any choices and decisions you've made. I have a right to kill, steal, destroy property. I have a right to do whatever I want to do because I'm a victim. And you filter everything through that in your life. Thirdly, I contribute nothing to the solving of a problem. Why? Because I'm a victim. It's not my fault that we're in this situation. You realize how hard it is in marriage counseling when you've got a man or a woman that has that kind of attitude? Well, it's not my fault. It's all him. It's this man I'm married to. Now, he's the fourth man I've had, but every one of these men have been bad. I'm good. I'm just... Pastor, I'm just the victim. Life has been so sad for me. And you know how well that flies with me as a counselor. You see, when you're a victim, you're not responsible for nothing at all. And Marxism thrives on that. But you have to understand this. Biblically, Marxism attacks the Judeo-Christian biblical worldview. Now, let me tell you, aren't we, the church, share an enormous amount of responsibility in our failure to live out the tenets of the Scripture of the Bible? We bear a lot of responsibility for even where this nation is right now. We have washed our hands of so many inner cities, so many communities. We have repeatedly, even our own denomination has repeatedly throughout its history done things that ought to be ashamed of. And I've stood against it for over 40 years. But you have to understand that Marxism is in conflict with the Judeo-Biblical worldview. Let me give you an example, private property. Under Marxism, government owns all the property. There is no private property. You don't own anything. Government owns it all. But in Exodus chapter 20, verse 15, in the Ten Commandments, you remember this commandment? You shall not steal. You know, you shall not steal implies that you do not steal what does not belong to you. Right? Let me give you another one. Deuteronomy 27, 17. Cursed is the man who moves his neighbor's boundary stones. In other words, a man who moves the boundary lines between him and his neighbor, the Bible says he is to be cursed. Deuteronomy 19, 14. Do not move your neighbor's boundary stone. Exodus 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not cover, covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant, main servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. The Bible says you do not steal, but you work. In fact, Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, If a man will not work, he shall not eat. We live in a nation right now, you can shop, you can riot, but in some states you cannot attend church. California and Colorado right now, 
pretty much their governments are at war with the church. One writer made this statement. He said, when the state, when the government seeks to dethrone Jesus and his word, there will only be sin and death. And when the church is silent, there will only be darkness. And you know that better than anybody. So we come to this woman by the name of Esther, a unique individual. She is a slave. The Jewish people under Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire, the Jews, you remember, had been taken into captivity. You remember these names, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego? They were slaves. They were Jewish exiles that Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian army picked up and carried back to Babylon and began to try to indoctrinate them into the Babylonian culture. Eventually, the Babylonians were defeated by the Medes and the Persians, and the Persians would eventually become the dominant power. Eventually, the Persians will be dominated by the Greeks. The Greeks, in time, will be dominated by the Romans. But Esther is a slave. She's a Jewish slave girl. Her parents have died when she was young. How, we don't know. She has been raised by a, a cousin, 15 years her senior, a man by the name of Mordecai. Now let me give you a little background real briefly. In Esther chapter 1, Xerxes is the king, king of the Persian Empire. He has a queen, her name is Vashti. And uh, Xerxes is angry. If you ever, um, I haven't watched it. My son-in-law told me not to watch it. 300, what is it? The 300 or whatever. It's about the Spartans and about the Greeks. Uh, the Greeks defeated Xerxes' army. Xerxes' army, actually, they had gone and built these bridges for their army to go in and invade Greece. And before they could get there, the storms came in and wiped them out. In fact, he got mad. I was listening to John MacArthur one time make this statement. Xerxes was crazy. He was unpredictable. He Listen, he had all the engineers beheaded that had built those bridges. Then he sent his religious prophetic figures into the waters and had them whip the water in a way of punishing the water for tearing down the bridges. He was a nut. He's defeated, and he's unable to take Greeks, Greece, and, and so the outcome is he comes back to the palace, and he has six months of just basically preparing a battle strategy to take Greece. In the course of time, in the course of time, he has this big one-week party. And in the middle of this drunken party with all of these men, he asks Vashti the queen if she will come so that he can present her before predominantly all these men. Some believe that she was being asked to present herself nude, naked. Some believe that she was pregnant with his child. And some believe it was Artaxerxes. And so the outcome was is that Queen Vashti told him no. Well, buddy, this went over like a lead balloon. When she doesn't show up at this drunken party and, and uh, the leaders and the male-dominated figures, listen, they come back and say, look, King, you got you to gotta deal with this. If you don't deal with this, we're all in trouble. This can start a feminist uprising here. We're, we are in a very, very bad place. And so... Xerxes banishes Queen Vashti, removes her from the throne, takes her title, 
puts her as a political outcast. Basically, she may have lived off somewhere, but the reality is he had nothing ever to do with her again, as we know. Then in chapter 1, verse 19, down to chapter 2, when you begin to read, eventually the king, he wants a queen. And so his leaders come together and they say, I tell you what you need to do. You need to have a beauty contest. Now, there were about 50 million citizens in, in the Persian Empire in that area. So if 25 million of them are women, and I was listening um, to just reading this in several commentaries, and I've heard it before, but the reality is, is that when you think about this, Esther had the deck stacked against her. She was actually being filtered up through perhaps millions of women and hundreds of finalists, and finally she comes to the point that she is presented to the king, and real quickly the king, in essence, takes her as the queen. Everything is going well until the chapter 3, a man by the name of Haman, who is an Amalekite, he's an Agagite, he is an evil man who hates the Jews. He is angry because Mordecai will not kneel when he comes through the gate. The people, but Mordecai wouldn't do it. A Jew didn't kneel. And he surely wasn't going to kneel to, to uh, Haman. So Haman convinces the king, he convinces the king to kill all the Jews. Okay, he convinced, let's kill all the Jews. And he sets a day when they're going to kill all the Jews. Mordecai learns of it, and Mordecai says to Esther, Esther, you've got to intervene for your people. There is a conspiracy, and you've got to do something about it. And this, this here, again, Esther chapter 4, verse 12, look at it. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, when she got word that Mordecai said, you've got to take a stand on behalf of the Jewish people, he sent back this answer because she was reluctant. She said, listen, if I go before the king unsummoned, he could kill me. And Xerxes, he's unpredictable anyway. So watch what happens, verse 13. He sent back this answer, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from, from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And here's the key, underline this parent, teach this to your children. And who's to know but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. Wow. I call this the stewardship of position. She's royalty. She was a slave. Now she's the queen of England. Now she's the queen of the Persian Empire. She's in a position of power and influence, but she's been put there by a sovereign God. God orchestrated her for this moment in history. Mordecai reminds her of that. And I wrote this principle down. I want you to listen to this. Wherever you are, and I want you to stop for a moment and think. As a teacher would say, put on your thinking caps. Wherever you are right now as a believer, 
has been orchestrated by a sovereign God who seeks two things. Number one, he seeks to advance his kingdom through you, and he seeks to model the principles of his kingdom wherever you are through you. Does that make sense? In other words, it's the stewardship of position, wherever you are, whatever place you're in. You may say, well, wait a minute, I'm just a, I'm just a mother. I'm a stay-at-home mom. My friend, you don't know that you don't have the president of the United States, a great missionary that will bring a spiritual awakening to this nation. You don't know what you're doing right now. You may say, you don't know the office that I'm working in. You don't know the school that I go to. You don't know the peers where I work at. You don't know the difficulty of what I'm doing right now. God has sovereignly put you where you are in that position to further his kingdom and to model the principles of his kingdom. Too many of us pour mouth to God and talk about and gripe about. My friend, God has strategically orchestrated. I got a, I got a message last night late. An individual said this. He said, you know, when I read this, I thought about you. And it was simply this statement. When you get up in the morning, hell trembles. Hell gets upset. My friend, may you and I have a reputation in hell. God has strategically put you where you are. That is why you're in the position that you're in. And listen, I wrote this down. You will either use that position for your own comfort, own convenience. You'll learn how to avoid conflict. You'll choose popularity over principle. You'll be self-promoting. It'll be your agenda and your aspirations and your dreams and your hopes or it'll be God's. It's either going to be your kingdom or God's kingdom. You have been divinely put where you are by a sovereign God. If you're a teacher, you don't know the student sitting on the third row, second from the left, who's sitting back there. You don't know. Miss Walters in 1960, whatever it was, in Riverview Elementary School, she was beautiful. I had a crush on her. Man, I was a little bitty. I think it was first or second grade, boy. I th and the teacher in the room next to us, that teacher, when those kids left, she'd line them up and hug every one of them. And I used to go, oh, I wish Miss Walters would hug me. She's beautiful. And I can remember that day when Miss Walters began to cry in that classroom in the afternoon. And I thought, God, what's wrong? And all of a sudden, the speaker came on and said, we, enter, we want to tell you before you leave today that the President of the United States, President John F. Kennedy, has been assassinated. I walked into my home. My parents were Republicans. My mom wept like a baby. We didn't have this partisan politics and this anarchy and this lawlessness that we become so rabid one party that we are unable to even work out our differences. Let me read it again. You will either use the position where you are for your comfort and convenience. That's what Mordecai told Esther. Esther, you can sit in the palace and you can, you can enjoy the comfort and convenience, but in time God will deal with you. God will do whatever he has to do to wake you up. 
And Mordecai said this. He said, Esther, understand, number one, God has orchestrated your life for this moment. He plucked you out of slavery. He placed you in a position of influence, and he's given you a divine opportunity. Lectures of Esther by Alexander Davidson, he wrote these words. He, such, he said, such an extraordinary movement of providence to raise an unknown exile, a slave, to share the throne of the most powerful figure at the moment must surely be intended to serve some higher end than merely to promote the temporal interests and gratify the pride and vanity of that one individual. She herself must feel that it could not have been for, done for her own sake alone, but to afford her the opportunity of doing good upon a wider scale that she had been so singularly favored. Listen to what he went on to say. He said, a special providence had watched over Esther, watched over her cradle, watched over her mother's womb, had continued to watch over her in her growing up formative years, even at times when she was helpless, was watching over her sovereign God. More remarkable still had been all the steps, the summation of her tragic life by which she was where she was. And he went on to make this statement, it is not about you. God has gifted gifted, educated, giving you the position that you're in. And you may say, listen, Rick back there, when he left Indianapolis and began to do contract construction work here, he went online, saw our church, began to listen to it. He didn't know that God was linking him to a pastor whose granddaughter is Ugandan and he's married to a Ugandan. And that man has begun to help us get our gym fixed. He's been putting floors down in the foyers in the buildings, and we can't pay him nothing. You may say, well, you don't know my position. Every position that represented in this room has the power to change the course of history. Number two, there may be risk. Esther said, I may die. King Xerxes is unpredictable. Evil Haman has hatched a conspiracy. Who am I to fight against it? I'm nobody. How many of you say that? I'm nobody. I'm nothing. I don't have no platform. I don't have no influence. I'm nothing, nobody. The great Welsh revival was started because a 15-year-old teenage girl stood up in a church meeting. Her knees were shaking so hard they were knocking together. And she made this statement. She said, all I can say is that I love Jesus. And revival swept across part of the United Kingdom and over 150,000 people came to Christ. I'm just a teenager, I'm a nobody, I'm a nothing. I told you of a 17-year-old in the Soviet Union who gave her life because she took a Bible that other Christians had spit on and she picked it up, wiped it on her dress and stood for Christ. They put a gun to her head and shot her. We're still telling her story. You may die. Martin Luther King Jr. died. But we still name our streets after him. We still talk about him to this day. And that's true. God will deliver his people, Mordecai told Esther, but you will have messed your opportunity. Listen to me. You have been positioned by God. Do not miss your opportunity. You do not walk by fear. You walk by faith. Mordecai said, you've got to expose Haman. You've got to expose the conspiracy. You can't.
to stand and to this day in the Jewish people and the Jewish calendar is a celebration called Purim. You know what Purim is? It's because a little girl, a slave girl, that went all the way from slavery to the most powerful, influential position next to the king who stood boldly for the Jewish people and stood against Haman and stood against Satan himself. The reality is when they celebrate Purim, they celebrate the they celebrate Esther. I've got to stop here. I'm too tired to preach anymore. Next week will be the last sermon in this series. It is a sermon specifically designed for the African American community you got an African-American friend or family member or somebody you love and care about, I want to challenge you to bring them next week. Mask them up, sit them by themselves if they're paranoid about catching anything. If they refuse to come, I want you to get them to do I want you to do everything you can to live stream. Next week is the last week in this series, and I'm preaching a sermon called The Conspiracy of Color. And I promise you that when that sermon finishes, I believe that it has the ability to wake up to an to wake up the African American community to the pivotal position that they are placed in right now, and how they must wake up, see the conspiracy that's been hatched against them for a very long period of time, and what God wants to do through the African American in America and around the world. I encourage you to come. I encourage you to pray. But I'm going to end with this. You and I, bottom line is, we're yoked to something. And in, in, in Matthew chapter 11, you don't have to turn there, but let me read it again. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary. You're weary? I'm weary, I'm tired. You're burdened? I'm, bur I'm burdened. I am, I'm weary, I'm burdened. Listen to what he says, I will give you rest. You need to rest? How many of you need to rest? I do. Take my yoke, that's what Jesus said. Hey, I've got a yoke, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in my heart and you will find rest for your souls. You need to rest. You need a quiet place. And let me tell you, as my wife will often say, just crawl up into the arms of Jesus and let him hold you a little while. Gene Henderson, when Gene Henderson was close to retirement, he was going through the fire. Dear friend of mine, Gene Henderson, I went over to his house one day and I carried a picture. It's a famous picture. It's a man coming into heaven. He's died and he's coming into heaven. As he comes into heaven, and I sometimes see me, he comes into heaven, he's collapsing. And as he collapsed, as he's collapsing in heaven, Jesus is grabbing him up. You know the only thing we'd want to hear? Listen. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Take my yoke, Jesus said. Learn from me. I'll give you rest. And he will. You don't have to live your life. He's sovereign over COVID. 
He knows everything. You can trust him. Let's stand. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and Lord, we love you. Lord, we live in a time in this nation and around this world there's great transition. Even as I speak to missionaries in Africa, see the repercussions of what's happening in America as it's affecting the continent of Africa, realizing that the instability of this nation makes our world unstable. I remember being in an African home one time, me and Matt, my son-in-law. I remember as we looked at an African couple sitting there in their living room. And I remember at a certain point when this Italian Ethiopian looked at me, beautiful, beautiful woman, she began to cry. She said, we thought you Americans would come save us. May we realize that we are gifted, that we're privileged, that we have the ability to live in a land that, dear Lord, gives us freedoms that many people around the world will never enjoy. God, may we realize that the stability of this nation affects the entire world. The instability will affect it as well. May every African-American man or woman realize that I believe like Joseph, who went from the pit where his brothers sold him into slavery, the Ishmaelites. From there he went to Potiphar as a servant, as a slave. He was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. From there he went to prison. And for 12 long years his life was hell. And then one day, Pharaoh, summoned him to the palace. Joseph, once a slave, facing a massive famine that could devastate the world and the Egypt and even the Jewish family that had been left behind. God had prepared Joseph. God had put him in a position of power and influence just like Esther once a slave to now give guidance and direction. Marxism is not the answer. It's not the yoke for the African American. It's not the LGBT movement. It's not Black Lives Matter organization. It's not Planned Parenthood. It's not all of these entities that find themselves grappling for the control of the African American vote. It's for the African American to realize that they have been called in history for such a time as this. Next week, it'll be a wake-up call. God, I pray you give me wisdom and influence. I pray you give me clear direction. And I pray that people will come from everywhere as they listen to what I believe is a conspiracy that has held the African-American in bondage and God wants to set them free so that they can be a Joseph, they can be an Esther. They can change not only the direction of this country, but this world. But Lord, may we realize that first we give our lives to you. And Lord, if there's a man or woman, boy or girl, in this congregation right now, they don't know. Say, Brother Jeff, I don't know if I'm saved or not. I don't know if I'm going to die and go to heaven. I don't know any of that. But I know that Christ has been speaking to me in this message. 
and I want to pray and ask him to come into my heart. I want to repent of my sin, turn my back on sin, give my life to Christ and make him the Lord. I pray, dear Lord, for men, women, boys and girls. If they're in this congregation and you're speaking to their heart, that they may come, even come now. Whether it's to talk to me or to Ledge, whether it's to talk to Sheila, whether it's to grab somebody else and say, listen, go with me to the cross, go with me to the, to the altar, wherever it may be, pray with me. Lord, I pray there'd be a new resolve, a new resolution, new, new fire. These are not the times to put down the swords and, dear Lord, give up and walk away. We're in a battle, and the sword that we carry is the Word of God. So may we be, as, as, as God told Joshua, Joshua, be bold and courageous. Joshua, be bold and courageous. Joshua, I'm going with you. I'll never forsake you. I'll never leave you. And a third time in one chapter, Joshua, be bold and courageous. It's what we need. God, speak to us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You come. You come. May never be a moment like this moment. You come. You need to pray in this altar. Sheila's here. She'll pray with you. I'm here. And I'll put my mask on right now. You come.
and uh, it gives Christians an alternative. If you want to be a part of this movement, which I think there are a lot of good things that are happening, if you want to be a part of this movement but want your Christian faith to speak out and to pull away from the organization Black Lives Matter, then this could be an alternative for you. We'll have it up again next week. John, don't let me forget. I'd love to keep it up throughout the message next week. Next week, the conspiracy of color. We'll be talking the message that is very much geared to the African-American community. A lot of people leave. They have to leave because they go to work and the preacher's long-winded. So, uh, sorry. But God bless you. Have a great week. And uh, I'll see you next Sunday. If you need me, know you can call me. Please know that. Take care.